You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. International Criminal Court reports a cybersecurity incident. Shrouded snooper intrusion activity is both novel and simple. Criminal malware targets Chinese-speaking victims. The costs of insider risk. More on the casino attacks and related social engineering capers. In our Learning Layer segment, Sam Meisenberg drops into a CISSP tutoring session and offers some test-taking tips. Our guest is Aaron Brazelton, Dean of Admissions and Advancement at the Alabama School of Cyber Technology and Engineering. And the Clorox incident shows how one company navigates unfamiliar new SEC rules. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel Briefing for Wednesday, September 20th, 2023. Reuters reports that yesterday in The Hague, the International Criminal Court said it had sustained a cybersecurity incident. Not only the ICC staff, but also lawyers for both victims and the accused were affected. The ICC's brief statement, communicated in its Twitter channel, said that the court detected anomalous activity affecting its information systems, at which time immediate measures were adopted to respond to this cybersecurity incident and to mitigate its impact. The ICC is investigating with the help of Netherlands authorities, But beyond that, the court has so far offered no further information. In particular, there's no attribution, but the most prominent cases before the ICC involve allegations of war crimes and crimes against humanity committed by Russia in the course of its invasion of Ukraine. The AP reviewed some recent history of Russia's troubled relations with the ICC, stating... Last year, a Dutch intelligence agency said it had foiled a sophisticated attempt by a Russian spy using a false Brazilian identity to work as an intern at the court, which is investigating allegations of Russian war crimes in Ukraine 
and has issued a war crimes arrest warrant for President Vladimir Putin, accusing him of personal responsibility for the abductions of children from Ukraine. Russia responded to the warrant, Security Week reminds readers, by placing ICC prosecutor Karim Khan on its own wanted list. So, no attribution yet, but if you bet on form, put your money on Moscow. Cisco Talos describes a new intrusion set dubbed Shrouded Snooper that's targeting telecommunications providers in the Middle East. The threat actor is using two implants Cisco Talos calls HTTP Snoop and Pipe Snoop. Talos states, Based on the HTTP URL patterns used in the implants, such as those mimicking Microsoft's Exchange Web Services platform, we assess that this threat actor likely exploits Internet-facing servers and deploys HTTP Snoop to gain initial access. HTTP Snoop is a simple yet effective backdoor that consists of novel techniques to interface with Windows HTTP kernel drivers and devices to listen to incoming requests for specific HTTP URLs and execute that content on the infected endpoint. There's no attribution yet, and Talos says that the group's tactics, techniques, and procedures don't match any known group, so they're tracking the activity as representing something new. The report notes, however, that state-sponsored groups, particularly groups operating on behalf of Iran and China, have recently shown a strong preference for attacking telecommunication providers, especially providers in the Middle East and Asia. It's worth remembering that there are criminal gangs that operate in, from, and around China that represent a law enforcement problem not only for China's neighbors, but for China itself. Proofpoint is tracking suspected Chinese cyber criminal campaigns that are targeting Chinese-speaking users with malware-laden phishing emails. Proofpoint says, Campaigns are generally low-volume and typically sent to global organizations with operations in China. The email subjects and content are usually written in Chinese and are typically related to business themes like invoices, payments, and new products. The targeted users have Chinese-language names spelled with Chinese-language characters or specific company email addresses that appear to align with businesses' operations in China. While most of the activity is focused on users in China, at least one campaign is targeting Japanese organizations, which the researchers believe suggests a potential expansion of activity. Okta has told Reuters that the criminals from ALF-V, also known as Black Cat, and Scattered Spider used vishing attacks against MGM Resorts and Caesars Entertainment. They posed as employees and inveigled IT staff into giving them access to the company's Okta client. This enabled the attackers to obtain further credentials within the Okta identity management system used by the organizations. Okta said that three of its other customers, unnamed but said to be in the manufacturing, retail, and technology sectors, have recently sustained similar attacks. On August 31st, the identity management provider warned of this trend, stating, Okta has observed attacks in which a threat actor used social engineering to attain a highly privileged role in an Okta customer organization. When successful, the threat actor demonstrated novel methods of lateral movement and defense evasion. These methods are preventable and present several detection opportunities for defenders. 
Prevention would include adopting phishing-resistant methods for enrollment, authentication, and recovery, tight privilege management, and implementation of dedicated access policies for administrative users. Okta also recommends close monitoring and swift investigations of any anomalous use of functions reserved for privileged users. Of the two casino chains hit, Caesars Entertainment saw data belonging to its loyalty program affected, but was able to keep its operations online during the incident. The Form 8K the company filed with the SEC strongly hinted that it had paid the attacker's ransom. MGM Resorts has had, by all accounts, a more difficult time. The New York Post reports that MGM continues to have trouble with its slot machines and hotel systems eight days after the attack was detected. The company is estimated to be losing as much as $8.4 million per day in revenue. The MGM and Caesars incidents come as public companies come to grips with recently introduced U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission regulations mandating quick disclosure of cyber incidents deemed likely to have a material impact on a business. These two companies face an additional regulatory burden, Dark Reading points out, in the form of oversight by the Nevada Gaming Control Board, whose Regulation 5260 requires covered entities including casino operators, to establish effective cybersecurity measures. In the event of an incident resulting in a material loss of control, compromise, unauthorized disclosure of data or information, or any other similar occurrence, a casino operator must disclose the incident to the board within 72 hours and undertake both investigation and remediation of the incident. There's another object lesson on compliance and materiality underway at Clorox. The cyber attack that disrupted operations at the major consumer products company was also among the first major incidents to fall under the SEC rules that went into effect on September 5th. Compliance dates for mandatory reporting are somewhat later, falling for most companies in December. The Wall Street Journal reviews how the company has responded publicly to the incident and it seems to be doing about the best that can be done under fluid conditions with imperfect regulatory clarity. Clorox has issued statements, including two Forms 8K, since the incident was disclosed on September 14th, shortly after it was detected. There are at least two challenges. The first is keeping reporting current as an investigation unfolds. One expert told the journal, a stream of 8Ks will be the new norm because, after all, investigation takes time. And the second challenge is determining whether an incident has a material impact on a public company. Materiality is a reasonable investor common-sense standard that will doubtless undergo some clarification over time. In the meantime, when in doubt, file those 8Ks. Coming up after the break, in our Learning Layers segment, Sam Meisenberg drops into a CISSP tutoring session and offers some test-taking tips. Our guest is Aaron Brazelton, Dean of Admissions and Advancement at the Alabama School of Cyber Technology and Engineering. Stay with us. (music) 
Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Many have said that if we want to meet the workforce gaps facing cybersecurity, we need to reach kids earlier in their educational journey, provide them with experiences and opportunities to get a head start on a potential cybersecurity career. The U.S. state of Alabama is doing just that. Back in 2018, Alabama Governor Kay Ivey signed legislation establishing the Alabama School of Cyber Technology and Engineering, a high school located in Huntsville. Aaron Brazelton is Director of Admissions and Advancement at the school. When you're in a traditional high school, you know, your class selection, it's, it's like a booklet. You can pick your classes. It's a buffet. You know, you can decide, do you want to take this or you want to take that? At our school, it's more of a seated dinner, chicken or fish. We prescribe to you the classes that you're going to take in order for you to get through your program in three years. That's another thing that makes us different is our entry points are ninth grade and 10th grade. So we enroll rising ninth graders, so current eighth graders going into ninth grade, um, and rising 10th graders, so current ninth graders going into 10th grade. And the students, they come in, they learn in ninth grade on campus, they learn in 10th grade on campus, they learn in 11th grade on campus, but their senior year, they are full-time an internship um, with one of our 75 partners. And you can go online and you can check out all of our partners in education. And two of our, our biggest gifts came from Raytheon Technologies and also Redstone Federal Credit Union. But our partners span the spectrum of industry. They, we have partners from commercial industry, from private industry, from DOD, from government, from K-12, from higher education. And so that senior year, kids take everything they've learned in theory for the past three years and they apply it in practice their senior year full time in an internship. Well, I would imagine with an opportunity like this, there's a lot of demand. How do you select who's going to be able to go through the program? 
So our emissions um, demand far exceeds our capacity to enroll. So our emissions process is definitely research-based. We look at academic factors and non-academic factors. We look at cognitive factors and non-cognitive factors to try and get a full view of the students coming in. So we ask for three years of academic transcripts. So those are your grades, attendance, and discipline. There's a parent letter of interest. There's a student letter of interest. There are some short essays um, that you have to write. And then there's also a recommendation from your current math teacher and a recommendation from your current counselor or school administrator to supplement your application. For those students applying from virtual situations or homeschool situations or private school, we do require a nationally recognized standardized test, such as the ACT, the SAT, or the SSAT. And what about for folks who, are, who come from underrepresented groups, you know, women or, or people of color? Absolutely. So one thing that has made our school so attractive for industry is the fact that we are disrupting what representation can look like in the STEM field. So at our school this year, 38% of our students are students of color and 35% are female students. We've done that very intentionally by partnering with community-based organizations um, like Boys and Girls Clubs, Girls Inc., Girl Scouts, NAACP. We're partnering with churches across the state. I'll actually be headed down to Mobile in just a couple of days to meet with the Boys and Girls Club down there to talk about our program. Now, it is important to note that with the recent decision from the Supreme Court to just reaffirm our stance that we actually don't look at race or gender um, in the application process, but we do work to increase the number of female students applying to our school and to increase the number of students of color applying to our school because we know that if they're represented at higher levels in the application process, then naturally more will be accepted when it comes to enrollment. Now, as the students make their way through this program, are most of them college-bound or will some of them be heading right into industry when they finish high school? It's an interesting conundrum that we face. Because with our students in internship full time and just the talent and quality of our students enrolled at our school, industry does want to hire students right out of high school. But we are a high school and our goal is for 100 percent of our seniors to matriculate to the college um, or university of their choice. We just graduated our first senior class. Um, there were only 17 in that class. They were our first uh, first group of kids that came in. Those seniors, the average ACT score was a 31 They were accepted to 37 colleges and universities, and they earned about $3.7 million in merit aid scholarships alone. And they 100% went to to university. How are you all measuring success here? And what are your hopes to grow the program in the future? Absolutely. So our our metrics of success are, are trifold. First, are we getting kids into the college or university of their choice? And how are they performing once they are there? And th- those numbers are coming back pretty strong with our first senior class being accepted to uh, most of their first choice options. The second thing that, that, that we're doing is, um, in, or how we measure success, is the fact that all of our kids are going into internship and we need, we need to know that they are prepared to address the challenges in the current workforce. And we're starting to get that data back from industry saying, hey, your kids know X, Y, and Z, and it will be helpful for them to know A, B, and C as well. So one thing that I'm proud of as a school is that we are reflective practitioners. We're not a school that can rest on our laurels and say that, hey, like this is what we need to do. This is how it's always been done. and This is how we're going to do it. 
But every year we look at what works and what doesn't work and we pivot to meet the demands of both higher education um, and industry. The third metric of success for us is really increasing the number of partners in education that we have. Our foundation does incredible work under the leadership of Alicia Ryan and Peggy Lee Wright to ensure that the partners in education that are coming into our portfolio are not just mission fit, but that they are also able to provide opportunities for our students to gain real world experience. So to become a partner in education, not only do you provide uh, mentorship, field experiences, or internship opportunities for students, but you also have the opportunity to have naming rights for a building or for, you know, part of our campus. So if you look at how our school is funded, we receive a line item from the governor every year. And that allows us to operate as a school. It covers utilities, it covers salary and personnel, food costs. But the actual brick and mortar of our campus, the buildings that we're in, that is all privately raised from our partners in education. So our foundation has done an incredible job. They've raised over $25 million in the past two and a half years to support the construction of this permanent campus. And with a grant that we received um, from the state of Alabama, we're going to be um, actually erecting a new student activity center in January, a $13 million building that is half privately funded, half state funded, that will also serve as campus. Our growth and who we're able, uh, how many students we're able to have on campus completely depends on our partnership levels. We do have plans in the works to add another academic building and another residential building that would allow for our enrollment to exceed you know, 650, 700 students. But that will all happen as those donations roll in to construct um, our physical campus. That's Aaron Brazelton from the Alabama School of Cyber Technology and Engineering. Coming up in our Learning Layer segment, host Sam Meisenberg drops into a CISSP tutoring session and offers some test-taking tips. Here's Sam. Welcome to Learning Layer. On this segment, we're going to be dropping you into the middle of a CSSP tutoring session. So I'm actually going to be working with a student named Ethan, and we're going to be going over some tricky content from the CSSP exam. Now, even if you are not studying for the CSSP, I think the topic that we're going to talk about is still relevant, and we're going to be going over some general test-taking and exam prep approach tactics. So I think no matter what exam you're studying for, it will be relevant. So without further ado, let's get to the session. So I think overall you're doing, you know, the right things. Seems like you have a good strategy and approach, but is there any content that you are struggling with? Yeah, I think something that I've been struggling a lot with in my studies is the difference between due care and due diligence. Mm. These things aren't just really making sense when I'm reviewing my notes and going over it. So don't feel bad. It's a tricky concept that, you know, uh, a lot of students wrestle with. But the good news is, like, once you know it, you really know it. It kind of makes sense. So before we get into, like, defining the words, though, let's take a step back, right? It's always important to see the forest 
you know, and the trees. So what domain or what sort of umbrella topic area does this stuff fall under? Yeah, if I remember correctly, it falls under domain one, which mm-hmm. is like a lot of the managerial stuff mm-hmm. and talking about what businesses should be doing to maintain cyber practices. Right. So domain one is called security and risk management. That risk management piece is about sort of, it's like the least technical, right, of all the domains. It's like, as you said, what the business should be doing. Now, due care and due diligence are actually like legal words. So we're, we're talking about concepts that protects the business, right? So you're making sure you're doing things in a proper way so that if, you know, something were to go wrong, we are protecting the business because we're doing things to, as you said, help secure the business. So it's about like if a compliance you know, uh, lawsuit ever came about, we're making sure that the senior leadership is protected and the business is protected. So with that context, let's get into the topics themselves. So easy way to think about it. Due diligence is sort of the precursor to due care. That's how they're related. What I mean by that is due diligence is like research. You are doing preemptive measures to make sure that you're not introducing unnecessary risk. And then due care is sort of the fall onto that, meaning after you make some sort of business decision, you are then doing upkeep, right? Sometimes you see it as like all reasonable measures is a favorite phrase of IIC squared. You basically are taking actions after a decision has been made. So does that sort of make sense? Yeah, so if I'm, if I'm following right, the due diligence takes place before you would do anything. That's mm-hmm. making sure we have all our bases covered, kind of to say. Mm-hmm. Whereas due care, that happens afterwards to make sure that we're routinely following and making sure our business is protected, you know, months, weeks, years after down the line. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a pretty good summary. So also, I think you had a question, right, that you wanted to ask? Yeah, this was one of the questions that I kind of got wrong, mm-hmm. came back to, still was struggling with it, which is why I kind of asked this, uh, brought mm-hmm. this up with you, which is the question is, uh, before closing business deals, a best practice is to assess third-party vendors to find what risks exist and develop ways to manage known risks. All right, stop. So just from that question stem itself, right? Because I think that the question itself then goes on to ask, what's the, what is this best practice known yeah. as? So even at that point, you should know the answer. Yeah. What is it? The, the answer is going to be due diligence in here. Right. Because uh, like some of the keywords that I'm looking at, you know, instantly kind of hopping off is like before, mm-hmm. you know, seen in the word assess, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of developing and finding, you know, it's things that you would do before entering that deal rather than afterwards. Right. And the word assess, to be clear, you can do assessments as part of due care, right? Mm -hmm. Like, for example, vulnerability assessments, pen testing, that's all sort of part of staying compliant and doing, you know, those actions after, for example, this business deal has closed. But in the context of a question, they're talking about assessing before you actually merge, before you actually, you know, close that business deal. So in this case, that's right. It's, It's due diligence. So what just happened? By the way, we should check the right answer. Is due diligence one of the answer choices? It is the right answer choice. Great, perfect. So what just happened is you predicted the right answer. You read the question stem, you thought about it, and then before reading the answer choices, you just went and go found that. And that's how you go fast on exam day. That's how you get the right answer. So, Ethan, I think you told me one time you're a football fan. Yes, diehard Eagles fan. Eagle, okay. Sorry, I'm the... Apologies for the Super Bowl loss. 
Thank you for can, that. Still can hurts. you name somebody who like plays defense? Uh, yeah, uh, Darius Slight, you know, who, that's yeah, cornerback. Cornerback? Yeah. Okay. So, you know that play where like they, I think it's called like jumping the route. They sort mm-hmm. of anticipate the throw or the route and they kind of like jump in front and intercept the ball. Yep. That's the feeling you should have on exam day when you're going through a question. You got to be proactive, not reactive. The answer choices are the scary, confusing places. The question stem is where you want to do all that hard work of thinking about the answer choice, predicting it. That way you don't get confused by the answer choices. Gotcha. And if you predict and it's not there, then it's time to panic, right? Then you can sort of figure things out. But all of the sort of thinking and hard work should be happening in the question stem. Like if you do a question, it takes you a minute and a half. The minute, the 60 seconds should really be spent on the question stem before you get to the answer choices. That makes sense. Thank you for joining me on today's Learning Layer. Hopefully you got something out of that tutoring session with Ethan. And if you yourself are studying for a cybersecurity certification exam, whether it be CSSP or another one, and you have some tough questions that you want to throw my way, please feel free to email me at learninglayer at n2k.com. Happy studying. That's my N2K colleague, Sam Meisenberg, with The Learning Layer. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The Cyberwire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester, with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by our editorial staff. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. 
Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.